0: As always, please note that all expressions of opinion offered today are those of the experts on the program. Today, we will be discussing private sector diversity programs and the law. The private sector has embraced the use of race and sex conscious policies to promote the diversity in the workplace and perhaps gain the benefit of a diversity of perspectives, but it's less clear how these programs fit within the constraints of our anti-discrimination laws. With us to moderate this discussion, we're very happy to have Judge Paul Mady of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. We encourage our audience to submit questions for our our panelists through the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. After our speakers have offered their opening remarks, a moderator will rely on submitted questions to direct the panel discussion. With that, thanks for being with us today and Judge Mady, the floor is yours
1: on behalf of the panel. Thanks for that kind introduction and the introduction to today's topic, a topic that's hardly new, but it has taken on new urgency as the concept of diversity in group settings has moved from education to government, to corporate mission statements, employee training, contracting terms. What we should ask is our goal. Is it as Justice Powell reasoned some 43 years ago, exposure to differences and the most robust exchange of ideas? Or is it agreement on a single narrative accompanied by a numeric goal? And where do we look to for an answer? Who, as is it often is asked, decides how goals like these should be designed and evaluated? Does context matter? And a different lens apply to fully private decisions by corporate actors. Where do the ancient and original guarantees of the Constitution rest in relation to these goals of our 21st century republic. We are exceptionally fortunate to have this panel to discuss, including Ted Shaw, the Julius L. Chambers Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Civil Rights at the University of North Carolina School of Law, where he focuses on advanced constitutional law. His career in civil rights includes service as director, counsel, and president of the NAACP's Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and as a trial attorney at the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. And we're also joined by Jonathan Barry, a partner with Boyd and Gray and Associates. Jonathan is also an experienced litigator who most recently headed the regulatory office at the United States Department of Labor and previously served at the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Policy. Fuller bios for both Jonathan and Professor Shaw are available in the program link. Jonathan, we'll start today with your thoughts and then turn to Professor Professor Shaw. As Alita said throughout, we'll welcome you to post your comments and questions for our guests, and I will turn to those during our conversation. And like everyone else today, I am delighted to have the chance to learn
2: from these important thinkers. Jonathan, with that, the floor is yours. Judge Mady, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and thank you to the Federal Society's Freedom of Thought Project and to Professor Shaw uh, for making this really timely discussion possible. Um, so, at the outset, I'd like to focus on what the law has to say about uh, the use of protected bases, but primarily race, in the two private realms that directly uh, affect or control access to opportunity, uh, namely education and employment. And specifically, I'd like to talk about the two most prominent justifications under which courts will sometimes allow schools or employers to take race-conscious action. Uh, those are, one, diversity, um, and two, remedying past discrimination. A- and As it happens, they correspond, in, in some ways, to education and to employment, respectively. Um, on diversity, Maybe the most interesting thing about diversity doctrinally as a justification is how narrowly it cuts as far as the Supreme Court has weighed in. Diversity only justifies race conscious action in the unique context. And that's not just my word. That's the the Supreme Court's words of of higher education, whether in the Equal Protection Clause uh, or under Title VI's ban on discrimination by private entities uh, who receive federal funds. The court has had a lot of back and forth across many fractured opinions that we've all enjoyed trying to piece together, uh, over the, over the years. Uh, but I'm going to quote here from, uh, the majority opinion in the first, uh, Fisher v. U.T. Austin case. This was a seven justice majority opinion, uh, with only Justice Ginsburg dissenting and Justice Kagan recused. Um, the court here is summarizing Justice Powell's controlling opinion. Uh, from the Regents v. Bakke case when it says that he, quote, uh, identified one compelling interest that could justify the consideration of race, the interest in the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body. Uh, redressing past discrimination could not serve as a compelling interest because the university's broad mission of education is incompatible with making the judicial, legislative, or administrative findings of constitutional or statutory violations necessary to justify remedial racial classification. The attainment of a diverse student body, by contrast, serves values beyond race alone, including enhanced classroom dialogue and the lessening of right, racial isolation and stereotypes. And then in, uh, in Bruder, the uh, the court, uh, likewise, they tied the diversity rationale Uh, to the, uh, quote, important purpose of public education and the expansive freedoms of speech and thought associated with the university environment, especially appropriate, I think, for this for this setting and this discussion and our hosts. Um, With that discussion, it also becomes clear how under the doctrine, at least how limited the diversity rationales reach is. Uh, the court made that particularly clear uh, in the parents involved in community schools case where a five justice majority refused to extend the Bakke Grutter uh, license uh, to a race based student assignment system for K-12 schools. Now, I, I think it's fair to say parents involved did not necessarily shut the door completely on extending the diversity rationale, but it's it's pretty close Uh in, in one of the cases uh, challenging the state of Cal- my home state of California's uh, corporate board diversity quotas, for example, recently, not our case, but ones brought by our friends at Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, there, the district court refused to extend the, the Grutter diversity rationale uh, to the board's context, uh, really by reading the cues in parents involved. Uh, and now, of course, it looks like the Supreme Court is reconsidering even the higher education angle uh, with the Harvard and the UNC affirmative action cases. Ah, uh, being argued this fall. So that's that's the diversity rationale. Uh, the other is remedial. Specifically, there is a judicially recognized justification for race-conscious plans designed to remedy past discrimination. This is where a lot of the action is over things like minority preferences in government contracting, uh, or more recently, some of the race-conscious funding priorities in relief programs like the restaurant COVID fund uh, or a a farm loan forgiveness program. And remember this rationale uh, per Justice Powell is not available in in the higher education context. Um, I think in the private sector, of course, where this does the most work, perhaps, uh, is in employment. Title Seven, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 forbids hiring, promotions, firing, so on, uh, on the basis of an individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Um, and there are some additional cues textually suggesting that really does set a bright line. Uh, There's an express savings clause carving out employers on or near a Native American reservation who want to give preference to Native Americans, and there's likewise express textual license to use a person's sex, religion, or national origin as a bona fide occupational qualification in limited circumstances, uh, but never someone's race. Nonetheless, in a 1979 case called Steelworkers v. Weber, the Supreme Court sketched out a pathway by which employers could voluntarily adopt race-conscious affirmative action plans as a remedy to pass racial discriminations. That case uh, upheld a plan uh, created in 1974 to remedy what were absolutely huge racial imbalances uh, in the higher-earning skilled job positions at that workplace. The Steelworkers Court justified its reading of Title VII with the observation that Congress's primary concern in the prohibition of discrimination in employment was with the plight of African-Americans in the economy. And I, I think as an aside, that has to be right. But the court went further. And here's the quote. Uh, It would be ironic, indeed, if a law triggered by a nation's concern over centuries of racial injustice and intended to improve the lot of those who had, and they're quoting Hubert Humphrey, been excluded from the American dream for so long, constituted the first legislative prohibition of all voluntary, private, race-conscious efforts to abolish traditional patterns of racial segregation and hierarchy. But even here in Steelworkers, which is really the court's high watermark in licensing affirmative action in private employment, the court flagged multiple aspects of the plan in question, tailored it narrowly uh, to that remedial purpose. Uh, the plan did not require the discharge of white workers and the replacement with new black hires. Uh, it did not create an absolute bar to the advancement of white employees. In fact, half of the employees trained in the program at issue uh, would be would be white. Uh, and, and maybe very importantly, the, te- the plan was a temporary measure. It was not intended to maintain racial balance, but simply eliminate a manifest racial imbalance. Absent those sort of remedial tailorings, the Supreme Court has never blessed an affirmative action plan in employment um, without that remedial rationale the only court to weigh in in a case like that uh, said that a non-remedial you can call it affirmative action plan uh, is forbidden by title seven and in fact that was your court judge Mady, um, in a case called taxman um, for about uh, 1996 uh, the third circuit did that um, so when it comes to remedying past discrimination Um, You know, my my main questions um, uh, for this for this conversation and for Professor Shaw, especially um, really relate to to that tailoring Uh, steelworkers, the court gave out multiple factors to ensure that any race conscious plan was narrowly tailored. So. Um, you know questions here would include um, is it is it is it appropriate can it be appropriate to use race as a proxy for having suffered past discrimination for example um, or do we need to um, tailor um, any kind of race conscious remedy um, to victims of it could be it could be de jure segregation or perhaps uh, you know perhaps downstream as well and these are questions that come up a lot uh, in these contexts and the, the last thing I'll say, Is that, uh, you know, the, the focus here, these, these private sector realms on education, employment, these are realms that, that in many ways control access to opportunity in our society. Um, and if we, I'd, I'd observe insofar as we use race as a proxy for, for disadvantage, uh, when we're talking about those kinds of, um, portals of, of access, it starts to create some uh, some weirdness and some potential um, disjoint. So anyway, I've gone on long enough for now, um, but I'm again, glad to be here, really glad to be having this conversation.
1: Jonathan,
3: thank you for that. Professor Shaw, we happily turn it over to you. Well, thank you. And uh, <clears throat> thank you once again to the uh, Federalist Society uh, for uh, inviting me to um, to mix it up with you all. Uh, I'm I'm glad to be here. And uh, Judge, uh, as uh, we have indicated, it's always good to to be together. So I appreciate your uh, guiding this discussion. I'm pausing for a minute because, uh, Jonathan, you uh, uh, appropriately mentioned um, the Taxman case. Uh, you know, the Piscataway case. And I want to come back to that. I thought maybe I'd start with it, but, but that's not the place to start. I do want to come back to it. But uh, the place to start when we talk about diversity is appropriately Baki. Uh, and uh, that case in 1978, of course, involved higher education. And that was really, as far as uh, I can uh, surmise really the first instance in which the uh, Supreme Court uh, talked about diversity, and it wasn't even the Supreme Court. It was Justice Powell and his um, his opinion that bridged the two camps of uh, justices uh, who uh, considered the question about whether or not race-conscious measures in higher education uh, were uh, constitutional or otherwise legal. Uh, and um, I, if we look at uh, the case law prior to the Bakke case, the discourse mostly was about the remedial justification, uh, particularly under the 14th Amendment, but even in other contexts. And of course, uh, Title VII uh, stands as its own Um, statutory provision with respect to uh, a non-discrimination principle. But uh, diversity came up in Baki in the opinion of Justice Powell, even at the same time that Justice Powell essentially threw, as I often say, the remedial rationale under the bus. Uh, You know, the Baki decision really left uh, the remedial rationale um, all but dead when it came to uh, higher education. Uh, And in many respects, did a lot of damage to it, even outside the context of higher education. Uh, And yet, uh, we're here today talking about uh, diversity in uh, the private sector. uh, In Um, uh, employment uh, in particular, uh, and that was neither the starting place, nor is it at this point the ending place, or should it be the ending place, when we talk about uh, the rationale that's available to answer the question about when and under what circumstances uh, race-conscious measures may be uh, legal uh, or allowed. Uh, And, of course, we're at this moment where we have the Supreme Court, this Supreme Court, uh, the most uh, conservative Supreme Court in any of our lifetimes, uh, on the verge of considering next term uh, the question of whether uh, race-conscious measures in higher education, a la Bakke, a la uh, Grutter, uh, and uh, the two Fisher cases, are, uh, going to be, uh, in any circumstances, allowed, um, and so, uh, we're at one of these singular moments, uh, right now. Um, let me just say two things very quickly. Now, there's a whole lot more that can be said. It's a great irony, in my view, that, as you correctly point out, Jonathan, that the, uh, uh, Title VII allows, under some circumstances, uh, consideration of, of uh, sex, consideration of national origin uh, concerns, and actually uh, gives more leeway uh, with respect to those kinds of considerations than race. Um, uh, the great irony is that uh, race, the uh, the the You know, the singular evil in this country's um, uh, history, Uh, the notion is that in order to protect against racial discrimination, we make it uh, almost impossible nowadays to do anything uh, about racial inequality itself in a conscious way. I think that is a um, a great irony in some respects, but it's because of Baki once again, the notion that there's no distinction between uh, race-conscious measures that are taken for purposes of promoting inclusion and, on the other hand, race-conscious measures that are based in the notion of inferiority, superiority, um, and that are invidious. Uh, you know, Justice Powell to make that uh, distinction. Having said all that, let me turn for a quick minute to Taxman, uh, the Piscataway case, and say a a quick word about that decision. Taxman was a case involving the Piscataway, New Jersey, school board in which the school board uh, considered grace in a layoff situation, which uh, should have been a no-no for the school board. Uh, And the Supreme Court had spoken to uh, the issue of uh, race conscious layoffs, a race consciousness in a layoff situation in um, Jackson versus wygan or, or rather wygan versus Jackson um, School District, uh, and made clear or made clear enough that it is almost never appropriate to use race in a context of a layoff situation. Nonetheless, Uh, and I could go into great detail on it, Uh, that's what the uh, Piscataway School District did. Uh, Anyone with knowledge of the governing case law would have told them, don't do that. Uh, First of all, uh, the school board in doing so was putting at risk uh, any efforts uh, to... uh, engage in uh, affirmative action in the employment context across the country. Could say a lot more about that, but it did it anyway. It should never have done what it did. Uh, and uh, that case involved a ultimately a settlement that upset a lot of people on the conservative side of the aisle uh, because the Supreme Court didn't get the opportunity that uh, it, appeared to be on the verge of getting uh, to really strike down uh, affirmative action in the employment context in almost all ways that it could have. Uh, But the case ultimately was settled. Uh, And from the standpoint of the civil rights lawyer who believed that we want to be able to consciously promote inclusion, uh, I thought that was a good um, resolution in that case. Fast forward to the moment. Here we are once again in the context of higher education and the question of whether diversity uh, in higher education is um, uh, appropriate and is allowed. It will bleed over whatever happens here if the court overturns its long line of precedence in the context of higher education. It will bleed over into the rest of society, including diversity efforts, and employment in all likelihood. And if it doesn't do that explicitly, uh, those who uh, are um, opposed to uh, affirmative action or diversity efforts um, will come back and try to expand whatever the court decides um, if they rule in favor of the students for fair admissions uh, into those other areas. So, we are in um, a particularly troublesome moment, Uh, and uh, I I think that uh, all eyes are going to be watching what happens in the higher higher education case. We have not yet talked about uh, California and uh, board diversity, et cetera, and uh, I assume, Judge, that um, uh, we may still get to that, but I'll cease for the moment.
1: Well, Professor, thank you for those remarks, and and in, and indeed we should. And so maybe two uh, questions coming out of those comments that I welcome either of you to respond to. So first, and maybe Jonathan, you could you could start with this. Given Professor Shaw's remarks, let's assume for a moment that the court finds a new path regarding the concepts of diversity, affirmative action, post uh, remediation for past harms in the higher educational setting in the coming years. How do you see that affecting? what has now become a, a kind of separate and severable system of diversity, inclusion, and remedial and training and priorities in the corporate sector? Do you think it is necessarily still tied or uh, or, or do we see something that may be a, a, a separate mission that now arises? That's
2: a great question. I, I, I think that, right, it, sort of do- doctrinally, as we've laid out, as a sort of a uh, bare bones formal matter, these are the, these are on separate tracks, but I, I think Professor Shaw is completely right that uh, that functionally um uh, we should culturally, socially, operationally we should expect uh, bleed over so if 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 hypothetically you know the 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 court ultimately uh, overrules its. Its reliance on the diversity rationale in the higher education context, I think where that's you have today a lot of private sector initiatives that are in in employment in uh, sort of corporate board uh, appointments as as well, and a lot of different folks are pushing for for, for that kind of thing um, that are grounded um, that really are justified in terms of in in terms of diversity. Um, and not specifically along the lines, you know, following the sort of the narrow path or narrower uh, path traced by uh, by the court in in Steelworkers in the in the Title VII affirmative action case. So, I, I, if if for example um, the if, if if the Supreme Court goes in really really hard on that and says um, something about Something that that sweeps a little more broadly that talks about uh, sort of intellectual diversity, diversity of perspectives, or something like that. I think that becomes something that um, uh, uh, critics uh, of uh, some of these overbroad diversity initiatives are going to start uh, pointing to. I think both in the court of public opinion, but also sort of as appropriate in you know in Article Three court.
3: Professor, your response. I um uh as I indicated, I mean, you know, Jonathan and I are in agreement apparently that all those um, questions will be up for grabs. I wanna point, however, to uh the uh the question of board composition in California. Um and uh I wanna point out that uh whatever the merits of California's efforts to uh, to get uh, corporations and companies to be more inclusive in their board memberships. There's an important distinction to draw between uh, issues uh, like um, uh, employment or uh, in hiring or employment with respect to layoffs or for that matter uh, admissions in higher education where you All these struggles, all these battles in those contexts uh, have been about um, who gets opportunities and who doesn't get opportunities. And the assumption has been, uh, although we can argue, it is that these involve zero-sum games. Uh, Board membership is uh, hardly something that I think of as involving a right. Uh, you know, boards uh, of corporations may uh, may reflect uh, corporate values, and maybe other reasons that boards um, uh, should be uh, more inclusive. Uh, and maybe those uh, reasons go to uh, the functions of those corporations. Uh, the um, uh, you know, board profit, I rather, corporate profitability, et cetera. Uh, having said all that, um, we who are involved in inclusiveness and those efforts have long known that uh, going back to Baki, anytime we engage in uh, any activities that uh, use quotas, Uh, we are on uh, dangerous grounds when it comes to legalities. Uh, uh, And I get that. I understand that. And so whether it's prudent or not uh, to actually involve quotas is one thing. Uh, But I still uh, point out that uh, when we talk about board membership, again, we're not talking about the kinds of zero-sum games that uh, people thought we were talking about in context of employment or in the context of admissions. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to underscore that. Yes, uh, anytime we have voters, uh, we probably are going to see litigation. Um, and in this conservative judicial environment, um, uh, we're on thin ice. Those of us who believe in Uh, inclusiveness, uh, but uh, it's not, shouldn't, it's not quite the same thing uh, as the questions that are being posed in the two higher education cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, Let me be clear, I of course am opposed to SFFA's uh, lawsuits and what they're trying to accomplish, um, but I'm still drawing another distinction.
1: Let me me pick up on that point and maybe direct this back to Jonathan. As we know that the rationale that Justice Powell offered in Bakke was this idea that the mission of the universe, the the growth of future citizens, of members of the Republic necessarily required a broad range of ideas and that that broad range of ideas would best be represented by a broad swath of individuals. And so it was kind of consistent with the classic notion of the university. One of the questions that comes up Uh, is starting to come up in relation to corporate missions is how is it that the mission of diversity directly relates to the mission of the firm. Um, If a corporation, for instance, is in the the business of simply selling a good or service, how is that um, intrinsically related to the notion of diversity? So do you see um, an overlap between those two missions that can be accommodated perhaps by notions of of corporate law, or or do you see some sort of irreconcilable tension and then we'll let Professor Shaw obviously respond?
2: Yeah, absolutely. so we uh, we dealt with this in um, uh, in the the challenge that we filed on behalf of the Alliance for Fair Board Representation um, against the SEC's approval of um, NASDAQ's uh, corporate board. Um, uh, you can call them. There's debate over whether they call them quotas or not, but um, in my case, we call them quotas, um, which. Um one of the, the justifications that that the Nasdaq Stock Exchange had put forward was that um improved um diversity along lines of in that case both um it was, there was one tranche of diversity of sex uh, and the other was uh diversity of uh, uh sort of racial uh, race and or sexual orientation um was uh was going to lead to improved corporate performance. Uh, We submitted uh, research indicating that when sort of diversity is defined along those identity categories, um, that uh, the sort of the evidence, uh, the evidence is not there. Um, uh, And that there is uh, there's evidence of correlation, I think, maybe most prominently, McKinsey um, has a study uh, along those lines. Um, uh, And to my I will admit, uh, to my surprise, um after we made that submission at the regulatory phase with the sec uh the sec actually uh backed off of that rationale that diversity mandates improve corporate performance um in its in its finalization instead fell back to this is something that uh kind of a certain subset of the investor class is clamoring for and that's all we need um under the under the law um i think the the issue comes down to um the the equivocation between um, uh, sort of diversity along one of these legally cognizable categories of of race or sex with um, diversity of viewpoint, and there there is a parallel, um, I think, between the corporate board context and the the university seminar classroom of diversity of, of viewpoints. But part of our part of our argument is that um, you can't automatically uh, equate the two.
3: Professor? Well, uh, there's, um, uh, there's a lot that we could say about the viewpoint issue uh, because uh, uh, the, uh, the viewpoint issue in some ways goes once again back to Bakke, at least when it comes to race. Um, the idea was that, that Justice Powell had was that uh, universities could seek diversity among the student bodies because uh, that benefits all of the students. Um, and uh, the notion that, uh, that race equates uh, viewpoint um, <clears throat> isn't necessarily essential to uh, the reasons why we may want to, uh, to pursue and achieve diversity. What am I talking about? Well, for example, uh, let me use Fisher for a quick moment. There was an exchange, in oral argument, and I believe it was Fisher too. Um, uh, I should really pull up the uh, the transcript of the oral argument, but I'll remember it best I can. Uh, Justice Alito, in an exchange with uh, counsel for uh, the University of Texas, Um, talked about a hypothetical um, uh, student who was the son or the daughter of a black professional doctor um, or or a couple, uh, a doctor, for example, maybe a lawyer, et cetera, and said, I I thought what we were trying to do is to to really help people who are disadvantaged, uh, but how does disadvantage work? in this circumstance, these are not disadvantaged people. Well, my response to that would have been, look, uh, Bakke killed the remedial justification. You're talking about the remedial justification. Baki all but killed that. On the other hand, um, it is uh, not accurate to say that the African-American son or daughter of a professional couple Uh, does not bring some different experience or perspective uh, to a higher educational institution. It doesn't mean they all have the same exact view of all other black people, but it's also inaccurate uh, to say that uh, that the experience of being African-American, even for African-Americans who may be privileged, is exactly the same as White Americans, or for that matter, all Black Americans. That's not the point. That was never the point. If you all but killed the remedial rationale, uh, which I think uh, was wrong headed, um, at the same time, uh, the diversity rationale is what you left us with. Uh, and the diversity rationale um, uh, does not mean that being Black. Does not have any uh experiential value uh for higher education if that's all you left us with the experiential value of the uh, of what students bring to a university uh, this, am I making sense uh, you know let me hear some engagement on that if I may. I like i i'm happy
1: to let jonathan answer that of course and, and i want to sort of add to that a question that has come from the audience that sort of speaks to this uh, do do the do, do the do the panelists see baki as really the shifting point when policies against exclusion have now turned into policies for inclusion and if that is the case do we face a, a kind of challenge with the subjective nature, perhaps, of the concept of diversity itself? Has diversity um, in some ways shifted its historical meaning such that it now um, is is more difficult to prescribe an objective standard of evaluation? And if so, does that challenge uh, the abilities of universities, corporations, any firm um, to meet that goal? And I offer that to either participant.
2: Um, well, I guess just, just briefly, though I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in Professor Shaw's uh, perspective on this, especially I think put in a in a larger historical context. I I, I think it does. I, I think it creates challenges when you um, when you appreciate how how heavy a, a a thumb on the scale, so to speak um that our laws uh, t- today uh really starting with the the reconstruction amendments but then um continuing into well <laughs> jumping forward uh uh to the the 1964 civil rights act um how heavily those put a thumb on the scale um against uh sort of race conscious uh, programs uh and syst- systems and the like um once you've moved off of I think Professor Shaw is, is totally right that once you once you move off of if anything is going to justify um, taking uh, race into account, um, irrespective of uh, of the sort of the textual prohibitions or the protection clause implicit textual uh, prohibition there, um, you've got to you've got to you've got to tie that to um, some kind of 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 concrete uh, injustice. Um, And I, uh, you know, instead what you're seeing today um, with a lot of these, a lot of diversity uh, programs is something that's a lot, it's just a lot looser. It's either in the sense as with the corporate board stuff, um, like, yeah, there's some, there's, there's some value to this, but is it enough to, um, to clear that bar, um, that very high bar in the law? I'm not, I think, I think generally speaking, no, perhaps universally, no
3: so let me um, uh, let me uh, judge uh, come back to I think the question you put to us say a word about that then uh, say something prompted by your um, uh, comments uh, Jonathan the uh, the baki case uh, to the extent that it uh, uh, it, came up with this rationale or Powell came up with this rationale, um, uh, of diversity. Uh, we don't see, uh, a, the struggle that we have over issues of race when it comes to diversity, when it comes to gender, for example, um, or some of the other bases that are protected in, um, and by title seven. Uh, that's because, uh, The Baki uh, Five um, uh, members who were opposed to race-conscious measures in the context of uh, uh, admissions, uh, they equated, refused to draw a distinction between, as uh, the terminology was then used, but so-called benign discrimination and invidious discrimination, and they equated... Mere race consciousness is my use of the term mere, uh, but mere race consciousness um, uh, with racism. And I, I contend that race consciousness was not the evil and is not the great evil in our society. Race consciousness in and of itself um, uh, is not the great evil that some people make it out to be in these challenges to uh uh, diversity efforts and emissions, et cetera. Racism is the evil. And the failure to make that distinction, I think, um, uh, does not reflect the depths of thinking uh, that we ought to be given to these issues if we're talking about uh, inclusiveness. But that perhaps goes back to the failure to address uh, and remedy our long history of discrimination. The other thing I wanted to say is that uh, the heat on these issues, ironically, and I said, tried to say this before, is not uh, in in gender, for example. Uh, You know, there is more um, uh, diversity with respect to uh, women in corporate America, and there's going to be. Uh, more inclusiveness when it comes to women. Uh, The same isn't necessarily true without what you described as a thumb on the scale uh, when it comes to race, particularly for African-Americans, but not exclusively. Um, uh, So uh, I had another point that I wanted to make, but I've talked myself out of remembering what it was, Jonathan. It was uh, in response to something you said, maybe it'll come back to me
2: story story of my life if i if i may um uh just one 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 additional consideration to throw out there so i um i you know one of the one of the key points i think in the the steel workers decision um that upholds the voluntary affirmative action plan that i was at kaiser aluminum um had is that um sort of clearly the the primary purpose of Title VII's uh, ban on race on racial discrimination in employment um, is to, um, to to shore up, protect, improve uh, the the economic lot, specifically the employment lot um, of of African Americans um, in, in in our economy. Absolutely, um, the the fact that that is the I think unquestionably the, the sort of the primary evil a- aimed at um, the the statute remedying. Um, doesn't necessarily answer what to do about a variety of, of lesser evils. Um, and so, like, the example I would point to in the, in the sex discrimination context, I wish I could get the, the verbiage right, but this is the, uh, the on KLV Sundowner case from the late nine, I think it's late nineties, where, um, this was a male on male sexual harassment, uh, case. Um, and, and right. And the court, and the court says, like, this was clearly not the primary evil um, at which the ban on discrimin- sex discrimination um, uh, is is aimed at, but it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that the, the law forbids it all, all the same. Um, and so there's that whole question of um, there's different ways to um, to fight and to undo um, the subordination, especially of African Americans. Um, uh, in our in our in our economy and as in every every other aspect of life. Uh, the question is, um, do we do so? Is uh, is race blindness or race consciousness the the means by which the law, as it stands today, um, sort of sets out how we're supposed to pursue that?
3: Yeah, um, uh, let me go back to Weber uh, with you that you appropriately raised and brought up in Weber. Uh, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the um, uh, the opinion
2: told us that I think it was something like one point eight percent or uh, one point three eight. It was really uh, I think I know what you're referring to. I just I just read it this af- this yeah, afternoon
3: of the of the skilled craft workers. I actually think it doesn't matter. I mean, why I quibble? But at one point eight three, same difference. Uh, were black, um, right. uh, even though the workforce was. Uh, about 39% um, yep. black. Now look, um, uh, it's well established again that uh, uh, employers don't have to meet a quota that reflects uh, the uh, the workforce exactly. On the other hand, um, the 1.83% of skilled or, you know, craft yeah. workers being pretty black. Stark yeah pretty stark um, yeah. Uh, you know and and um, um, reflected uh a uh, a history and a background where race discrimination itself was real, and that's what uh the company was trying to uh to deal with there and and you ended up with this voluntary uh affirmative action program uh, if we look at the um the the stark percentages of disparities. Um, still experienced by African Americans, whether we're talking about uh, wealth, uh, whether we're talking about income, uh, whether we're talking about home ownership, I could go on and on. These disparities uh, continue today. Yes, we made a lot of progress. There's no question about that. At the same time, the notion that institutions and employers, uh, you know, higher educational institutions, et cetera, have to gouge out their eyes Um, uh, when it comes to issues of race, because somehow efforts to uh, open up opportunities or achieve more diversity um, gets equated with the long, invidious history that produced the kinds of numbers like 1.83 that uh, Kaiser Aluminum was dealing with and, uh, you know, the... uh, um, the pithy numbers of African Americans, um, and for that matter, we can talk about other groups uh, um, that have been discriminated against. But those things are, um, should not be equated. Uh, the The inability of the Supreme Court to draw distinctions uh, between uh, what was called invidious discrimination and efforts to include. Simply by saying that all race consciousness is evil um, is, uh, in my mind, uh, says more about me. Some people will say I don't. I don't. I'm sure not everybody here is going to agree with that. Um, but that's a kind of uh, lunacy or idiocy that I can't wrap my minds around. Mind around. Every time I do these uh, programs, I think I won't be invited back. So there you go.
1: (laughs) And yet here you are again, because we we cannot improve on your contributions. A a question um, for both Professor Sean, for Jonathan, that has shown up a couple of times now in the comments is this question of the remedial remedy. That was jettisoned in Baki. Um, so the first would be a question, perhaps, uh, perhaps for you, Professor Show, which is would you favor a restoration of the remedial remedy in a new line of jurisprudence? And then I think for Jonathan as well, yeah. there's obviously the famous line from Justice O'Connor regarding the 25 year clock and this concept that any sort of remedial yeah. remedy would have to have
3: an outer end on it. Uh, and and I welcome your thoughts on that. Part as well. No, thank you for that question. And and my short answer is yes. I would favor uh, a revisitation um, uh, and uh, looking once again at the the question of remedying um, uh, the causes and the sources of inequality in our country uh, in various contexts. Um, uh, Justice O'Connor's 25 years uh, when she articulated it, uh, I know I wasn't alone, but my, my reaction was, where does that come from? Where did she get that? Uh, what in our experience uh, uh, as Americans makes us think that this, this thing that we've been struggling with since before we were a country, Uh, uh, this thing that um, uh, was the underlying cause of the Civil War, Um, uh, this thing that continued for another century after the Civil War, and that we only began to address in a deliberate and uh, conscious way, Uh, you know, 50 some odd years ago, uh, approximately. What possibly could make her think that this was going to disappear in 25 years. Now, uh, Justice O'Connor, one of her former clerks, actually wrote uh, an article uh, that is part of a book that was published on uh, affirmative action, 25 years, in which they backed away, she backed away from that 25 years uh, notion. And here we are, uh, you know, on, basically we're there, almost there, uh, 25 years later and you know look at what we're dealing with with respect to issues of race and white supremacy and um, uh, and the divisiveness in this country and let me quickly say uh, the cause of these problems is not deliberate efforts to ameliorate our long history of discrimination that has brought us to the inequality that continues with us today. Uh, the cause is that we still have unfinished
2: work to do. So I, um, I can't I can't add a ton to that. But what I what I will say is um, I do think if I, yeah I think it's I think it's uh, possible that uh, the Supreme Court um, it might be might be the case that the Supreme Court uh, opts to take a sort of the. Uh, sort of remedial escape hatch um, uh, on, on on the Harvard case. That's one way. There's a lot of ways it could be resolved. Uh, but that would certainly bring um, the, the higher education space doctrinally into greater alignment um, with um, the rest. Really, the kind of the rest of how we think about uh, the use of race in uh, both both publicly and privately, uh, for for that matter um
3: what Interesting I interestingly enough, Jonathan is yeah. this uh, I apologize let me put this in real quickly uh, there's a report that Harvard has just issued about its own history uh, of uh, discrimination and racism interestingly enough yeah. mm-hmm.
2: yes um uh, I wonder if they the I'm reminded of uh, Princeton uh, two years ago had a, had statements about systemic racism that got them that got them into some trouble with the with the Department of Education, although I suspect that invita- that inv- investigation has um, stopped. If I if I if I had to guess. I um, think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, can't imagine why, you know, either way. Um, but they're but, not out of controversy with respect to issues of race. Yeah. No kidding. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, the, the the thing that I would want to focus us on though and it comes up with the the 25 year clock concept uh, it comes up in um, in just a lot of these is is this question of tailoring um, is having remedies that are uh, that are genuinely um, tailored to the ultimately I, I think to the causal responsibility of the entity that's now offering this, um, this race conscious program. Like there's, you know, there's one way in which, so like Harvard today, um, or even Harvard in, um, in recent decades, um, uh, you know, what has their, uh, what is their contribution, um, been to, to racial disparities, uh, for example, um, and how, and, and contrast that with, the, with Kaiser aluminum in the steel workers case, where the affirmative action plan uh, that was agreed to at that time was made in nineteen seventy four. So that is um, that's that's within the kind of the the work life cycle of uh, uh, lots and lots of folks who had been in the relevant uh, workforce at the time when uh, de jure uh, segregation ended. Um, in 1964, and you know, obviously, lots of resistance and the like to that actually being implemented, um, and the like, um, and then you you, you further have um, what seems to have been upstream uh, kind of pipeline racism by the uh, by the trade union uh, in question um, that I guess by 1974 had been worked out because um, they they agreed to this uh, to this to this plan um but it was uh, it was there as well that's a that's a that's a much tighter nexus um with um uh, with actually causing racial uh disparities in that case in employment and there's a, you know big lifetime earning uh, differentials between being unskilled and being a skilled craftsman um than what we're dealing with in harvard so I, I'm, I'm curious if, if if professor shaw would like to put out there like what are the guideposts we can think through to help us figure out kind of when is when is enough? What is an appropriate tailoring regime uh, look like?
3: Yeah. So um, uh, I don't know that I'm going to win any friends when I, um, uh, I say what about space, say, huh? but but the um, the notion of a time limit uh, as articulated, uh, albeit. Uh, uh, as I said, she backed away from it uh, by Justice O'Connor. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's well established in Supreme Court and lower court case law, the time limit uh, with respect to a remedy. It makes sense. Uh, you know, it makes sense because um, if what we're trying to do is remedy uh, inequality that's based in our history of discrimination or a particular institution's um, past discrimination. At some point, you get to the you get to the uh, the place where uh, we hope that uh, the cure has worked. Uh, although I think that the the long history of discrimination requires more time than what we like to think. Uh, very often, the same is not true, though with the diversity rationale, which is all the court left us with, basically, uh, with respect to, um, you know, the Bakke decision. If that's your rationale, diversity is the rationale, um, uh, what requires, uh, what makes us think that uh, that diversity won't be a continuing, compelling interest? Now, what we hope for is that we get to the point where we don't have to consciously do anything to produce diversity, but diversity still will remain a compelling state interest if that was uh, the interest uh, that was upheld in Bakki. And it was uh, the interest. And so my point is, is that uh, uh, time limit uh, for remedy, yeah. Uh, but time limit is not inherently and needn't be a inherently a part of the, um, the diversity rationale uh, because what Bakke left us with is the university's interest. It threw the interest of African-Americans and people of color, frankly, under the bus uh, in Bakke and left us with the institutional interest. Uh, but that interest will survive on the part of the university. The only question is whether we have to do something to accomplish it. This discussion of time
1: limitations is timely as we are up against the clock, but Jonathan, I wanna give you uh, the floor one last moment uh, to offer any final response to Professor Shaw's point. Wonderful.
2: Um, thank you. Um, uh, let me let me say this has been a, a wonderful discussion. I really, really appreciated it. Um, uh, I, I, I think I will... Um, let me let me cast a vote in favor of of clarity, which I hope I hope this conversation has helped with. That um, these it really does seem like the the deployment of a of a time limit in um, in, in Gruder, for example, is is an example of some conceptual confusion um, of of taking a, a remedial rationale in in a sense by another name and putting it under the, the diversity heading. Um, And uh, I I think I think that thinking crisply, as we've tried to do today, I hope um, uh, that these are that these are distinct um, things um, is going to be is going to be useful going forward.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Notably absent from our conversation um, is the most powerful branch that is the role of Congress. One of the more intriguing things that came up in our discussion was how much we saw this as a matter of judicial interpretation um, against or with the actors uh, in the private sector with uh, little thought um, seemingly about what it is that the elected representatives could do, for instance, to address the language of Title VII, which obviously gives some of these interpretive problems. Uh, All food for thought and My hopes, uh, thanks to Alita Fu for a further presentation. With that, I will turn it back over to her.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much. And absolutely, I, I look forward to this being the first of, of, of several discussions on this topic where we've, we've barely scratched the surface. Um, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our panelists and our moderator for the benefit of their time and insight today, and thank our audience for joining us and participating and offering some really, really strong questions as well. We um we welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. And a reminder, we invite you to join us for our next Freedom of Thought program, June 2nd, with Eugene Volokh and Judge Beavis on the Solzhenitsyn essay, Live Not by Lies. You can visit our website and watch your emails for registration information there. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federal Society's Practice Groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.